Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Friday, December the 10th. This week we focus on haematology, linked to three research articles in the current issue of the Lancet, which is dated December the 11th to the 17th. Earlier, I spoke to Dr. Jeff Davis from the Department of Medical Oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston in the United States to discuss the three papers. And we began by discussing the first article in the issue, a randomized trial from the UK Medical Research Council concerning treatment for multiple myeloma. Multiple myeloma is a hematological malignancy which commonly occurs in older adults. And it's a malignancy of plasma cells, which are B lymphocytes that disseminate through the bone marrow. The dominant clinical features of multiple myeloma are marrow failure, which results in anemia, bleeding and infection, and bone disease, and also renal failure is common in this condition. Now, the only curative treatment currently for multiple myeloma is allogeneic stem cell transplantation, but this is associated with a high toxicity in this patient group. However, chemotherapy, along with several new biological therapies, can be used to achieve and extend remission in myeloma patients. These fields of treatment are in rapid development in recent years. Why bisphosphonates? What do you think the potential is here within this setting? What's called osteolytic bone disease is a key clinical feature of multiple myeloma, which uh, results in destruction of bone, causing pathological fractures, which can require surgical intervention, and chronic bone pain, which may need palliative radiotherapy. Now, bisphosphonates are a class of drugs which impair the increased activity of the osteoclast cells, which break down the bone in myeloma patients. And bisphosphonates are commonly used from the time of diagnosis in myeloma patients who present with bone disease in order to prevent further skeletal events. It's also thought that bone fractures may contribute to the growth and dissemination of malignant plasma cells in myeloma patients. So bisphosphonates might also slow the progression of myeloma itself. Could you just briefly summarise the methodology and key results from this study? Gareth Morgan and colleagues report the results of a large multi-centre randomised trial aimed to establish whether bisphosphonates can affect the clinical outcome of treatment in myeloma patients. Patients with newly diagnosed myeloma were randomised to receive zoledronate, which is a bisphosphonate given intravenously once every three or four weeks, or clodronate, which is a bisphosphonate taken orally every day in addition to chemotherapy. The primary endpoints of the study were overall and progression-free survival and overall response rate. And the occurrence of bone disease or events related to bone disease was a secondary endpoint. The study investigators report that zoledronate resulted in less skeletal-related events suggesting that this agent is better than clodronate at preventing or controlling myeloma bone disease. Another key finding of the study is that zoledronate use actually increased the median progression-free survival and the overall survival, albeit by only a few months. But this finding can't really be explained by the reduction of bone disease-related events alone. In terms of conclusions, what can we draw? It seems there's a pretty clear message here for clinical practice. Well, the authors postulate that zoledronate might have a direct anti-myeloma activity in addition to its effect on osteoclasts and prevention of bone disease. And they suggest that in view of this, all myeloma patients should receive zoledronate from their initial diagnosis, whether or not they have evidence of bone disease. 
The study certainly lends weight to the evidence that some bisphosphonates may exert a direct anti-myeloma effect. Is there a need to change practice straight away? Well, it's already current practice to administer a bisphosphonate to patients with myeloma who present with bone disease. This study argues that zoledronate should be used over clodronate in such patients, certainly. What we don't know is whether zoledronate is superior to other bisphosphonates, such as pomidronate, for instance, which is commonly used and has a similar mechanism of action, but is cheaper and is associated with less toxicity. Secondly, the study doesn't clearly demonstrate a survival benefit for zoledronate in the one-third of myeloma patients in the study who did not have bone disease at the time of diagnosis. So it remains unclear to me whether this subset of patients will benefit from prophylactic treatment with zoledronate or other bisphosphonates, and if so, with which drug and for how long. Next, another research article, and this is a study from Germany, and this concerns acute myeloid leukemia AML among older adults. It's specifically concerned with intensive chemotherapy in relation to complete remission or early death. Give us some background here, and perhaps you could explain some of the concepts behind this study. In acute myeloid leukemia, the risk-benefit ratio of intensive chemotherapy differs significantly between younger and older patients. The latter have less chance of achieving remission after chemotherapy, but they have a higher risk of death in the early period of treatment. And there's an unmet need, really, for a simple and robust way to predict the risk-benefit ratio of intensive chemotherapy in individual older patients with AML. Briefly, if you would, just summarize the methodology and the main findings. Well, this study uses multivariate regression analysis to develop a risk score for a cohort of over 1,000 otherwise healthy patients aged 60 years and above with AML. They received two cycles of intensive induction chemotherapy. The risk prediction score was then validated in an independent cohort of 800 patients with AML receiving similar treatment. Several parameters such as body temperature, age, whether the leukemia was secondary to prior chemotherapy or other hematological disorders, and some biochemical markers were used to create a score which could predict complete response or early death after intensive chemotherapy. These scores accurately predicted the likelihood of these two events either with or without the knowledge of the genetic characteristics of the leukemia cells. So I assume the main conclusion here is that this diagnostic tool can actually be relevant in clinical decision-making about the use of chemotherapy at AML diagnosis. Well, this certainly could be a very useful tool to guide initial treatment recommendations in older patients with AML, and it could easily be developed as a web-based resource that could be remotely accessed at any time by physicians worldwide. It's well established that older patients with AML who possess certain unfavorable genetic abnormalities in leukemia cells have a very poor outcome, whether or not they're treated with intensive chemotherapy. It's unlikely then that this scoring system would be useful to guide treatment for this subgroup of patients. However, the scoring system may be of great use in identifying patients without these adverse genetic markers whose other biological features predict a very poor outcome with chemotherapy. And it would also be useful in identifying those at high risk of poor outcomes before genetic results become available. The scoring system, however, only applies to patients who are otherwise healthy. Significant comorbidities commonly occur in patients aged 60 and above, 
and these factors undoubtedly contribute to outcomes of treatment for AML. Finally, I'd have to say that all risk scores predict outcomes, sometimes very accurately, but they don't make decisions for patients or for physicians. These decisions have to be made by patients and physicians together. The central question of what is an acceptable versus an unacceptable risk remains. Indeed, I think that's a very good point to end discussion of that paper. And finally, Dr. Davis, we're going to discuss the trial, and this concerns ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, among children who have had first relapse. Just before we go into details of that, again, for context, could you just tell us, remind us how treatment and outcomes for ALL has, has certainly changed over the past couple of decades? The overall survival of children with ALL has risen from 50% in the 1970s to above 80% at the present time, which is a great triumph for the modern chemotherapy age. Unfortunately, there hasn't been much improvement in the outcome of children with ALL who relapse. The overall survival of this group remains around 50% and has done for the past 20 years. The pattern of disease relapse in ALL has changed over the last two decades probably as a result of the primary treatment approaches changing. And more relapses occur in the central nervous system. As a result, the treatment strategy for children who relapse with ALL was revised in the UK uh, in 2003. Thank you for that. And go on and tell us about the details of this trial. Well, this is an open-labelled, randomised trial with centres in the UK, Ireland and Australia and New Zealand. Patients aged 18 or less with a first relapse of ALL were stratified to receive chemotherapy regimens according to identified risk factors. All patients were randomized to receive either idorubicin or the drug mitoxantrone in induction chemotherapy. Patients then received continuing chemotherapy or allogeneic stem cell transplantation according to minimal disease status or prior assigned risk. The primary outcome of the study was progression-free survival. Randomization of the two drugs in chemotherapy induction was stopped after just over 200 patients were recruited to the study. And this was because of a significantly higher progression-free survival in patients who received mitoxantrone compared to those who received idorubicin. The difference here was very marked. 65% progression-free survival in patients receiving mitoxantrone compared to 36% progression-free survival in those receiving idorubicin. And there was also significantly higher overall survival at three years in the group who received mitoxantrone. Just before we discuss the implications of those results, uh, can you just comment on the use of, referred to quite a lot in the article, is this um, effect of minimal residual disease? That's talked quite about quite a bit in the article. Can you just clarify what that means in the context of this study? Certainly. Well, testing for minimal residual disease, or MRD, is a sensitive way to detect very low levels of residual leukemia cells after initial chemotherapy. And several studies have suggested that patients with lower levels of MRD early after treatment are at a lower risk of subsequent relapse compared to patients who have higher levels. And so MRD might be useful for guiding subsequent treatment um, in both adult and pediatric leukemias. MRD measurement was performed in this study in patients with intermediate risk. However, a very interesting aspect of the study is that no difference was found in terms of the MRD levels between patients who received uh, mitoxantrone and the patients who received idorubicin. 
And thus, MRD measurement as performed in this study did not appear to predict outcome for these patients. And this really highlights the gaps in our knowledge regarding MRD measurement. For instance, different drugs may lead to different kinetics of MRD clearance. And so the best time point to measure MRD may vary with different treatments. And just going back to those results, it's a striking results for patients who received mitosandrone and indeed randomization into the trial was stopped early when it became clear that uh, that drug was going to be or proving to be more superior, more efficacious than, than the other drug. What does this mean for clinical practice? Well, I think clearly these results should, should and will have a big impact on the management of paediatric ALL in first relapse. Also, the results are so positive uh, that they suggest that new clinical trials should be designed incorporating mitosantrone in the upfront treatment of, uh, of paediatric acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Mitosantrone isn't a new drug, and there are some studies that have shown mitosantrone has a positive benefit in high-risk paediatric ALL as part of the upfront treatment regimen. And I think new, larger clinical studies should and will be designed incorporating mitosantrone in uh, treatment earlier in the natural history of this disease. Well, it's terrific. Thank you very much, Dr. Jeff Davis, for giving us an overview. That's of three hematological articles published in the current issue of The Lancet. I should just add they were published online to coincide with the American Society of Hematology meeting that took place in early December. Dr. Jeff Davis on the line from Boston. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Many thanks again to Dr. Jeff Davis and to you all for listening. See you next week.